Welcome to this edition of Inside the White House with NPR. <laughs> Is that a show? What's the what's the what's the NPR show that I completely blanked on in the middle of that sentence with Ira Glass? <laughs> Back from summer hiatus in a brand new sound booth. <laughs> nope, Paul, I've forgotten. The summer hiatus has ruined me for the intro. I mean, I was an intro all-star before the summer hiatus, and here we are. Well, you were at least AAA. At least AAA. I was waiting for that call-up at any moment. <laughs> at any moment. But we've gotten the call-up anyways, because we were in a soundproof we're booth. We're in a soundproof booth. Soundproof booth. Yes. Tongue twister for you. Yes, we can we can hear each other talk. This is way better than actually driving up and down the... Uh... We're just getting signals from our producer. <laughs> <laughs> we are so high, do- high I tell you dollar what. these days. I tell you what. No, it's this is like a quantum step up from driving up and down from Denver, right? To those... That's right. Oh, my goodness. Those of you who have stuck with us through car rides and, uh, you know... Yeah. Sound problems galore. Yeah, and a two-month hiatus. A two-month hiatus. Thank you for letting us take a summer break, unannounced. That you unannounced, that you we just even took off. Of. <laughs> uh, but, but it's because Jake was on the lam. Actually, I was on the run. I yeah. got fired. I had to go undercover, <laughs> find a new job, go to D.C. a bunch of times. Yeah. You know, just to get yeah. things straightened out with you know agencies that can't be named. Due to security purposes. Well, exactly. And but but I'm good. I'm back with my regular identity. It's regular identity. It's crazy how this you've grown works. back the beard. The beard is here. I have you you've know, taken you've, the dye out of my hair. No more Groucho Marx masks. No more Groucho Marx masks. What is it with the tongue twisters today? Groucho Marx Grouch, masks. Groucho Marx masks. Oh, I'm trying man. to get us into into good podcasting shape. That's right. Groucho Marx. Loosen masks. up the tongues. Sally picked seashells down by the seashore. Yeah. Ah. Um. But but in reality, the the summer hiatus. I can't even talk. (laughs) Guys, what's going on here? Falling apart. The summer hiatus. (laughs) Sounds dirty. Hiatus corpus. (laughs) Sounds scientific. Too scientific for this podcast. This is pop culture with fanboy (laughs) know it all. I'm Jake. I'm Paul. (laughs) Welcome back inside our crazy brains. Now coming to you live from or not live, live whatever. You know what time? (laughs) We're live. We're We're live right now. And you'll be listening to it live. Hopefully we will be alive when yeah. you listen to this podcast. And hopefully you'll be alive when you're listening to this podcast. Because, Ooh. you know, when you listen while you're dead, I hear there's problems with your receptors picking up all the information. Right. Talk about a quiet room. That's right. Yeah. Uh, our library here in Colorado Springs is pretty awesome. They built one yeah. that has a podcast studio in it. So thank you. Shout out to Pike 21C. Pete. Yeah. Library District 21C. Not a sponsor. <laughs> but maybe they will become one. Maybe they will. I don't yeah, know how that I, works with like publicly really... funded operations like libraries. But I have I have podcast studio envy now. I mean, this is really great. Yeah, it really is. It is. Uh, but we're here to talk about Stranger Things because we promised that. Yes. To you've our all, good friends. You've all seen it You've now? been waiting. Yeah, you've had two months to, to watch it with us. We binged it yeah. before we realized <laughs> that we were going on summer hiatus. <laughs> Uh, but you guys have had time to to watch it through, you know, week by week. Yeah, if maybe two or three. I mean, times. I'm sure you probably binged. You've it, probably forgotten about it and watched it again uh, because it's been two months, which is basically two decades in the digital space. Yeah, we're gonna do a spoiler, spoilery breakdown of Stranger Things season three because I've got some hot takes. Well. Lukewarm takes because uh, it's old. Well, it can't be that hot. Yeah, uh, they're pretty hot. I'm gonna oh. bring some. I'm gonna stir up some controversy. It's gonna oh, be back in the news no. when this goes viral. Thank you in <laughs> advance, friends. Um, and, yeah. And as promised, we're also gonna be talking about Taxi Driver as a part of our backlist Hall of Shame. Yeah. I had yeah. to scrub it off of mine. Yeah, I'm I'm really excited to talk about it actually because there's some. It is ironically because of the summer hiatus. It's now actually in the news again. So not only is it on the back list, it's now on the front list. On the, the front future list. list. That is correct. And, of course, we'll wrap up the show the way we love to every single time with the most least important thing. But for now, it's time to talk about 
Taxi driver. Taxi driver. Robert De Niro. Young as I've ever seen him in Taxi Driver. Really? Yeah, I, I, I've never been a De Niro fanboy. Oh, I don't, I don't hate man. De Niro by any means, but I was never like, I never felt like I needed to go back and watch his entire catalog, hence why Taxi Driver was on my back list. So that's as far back as you go? That's as far back as I've hmm. gone, 1976. Yeah, so I think we're going to have to do the uh, Godfather Part Two on our back list one of these days. Godfather Part Two. I think that was where he became a star. That's like the Empire Strikes Back or the Godfather trilogy, right? <laughs> That's exactly right, actually. <laughs> Nailed it. Very good. Very good. But, uh, Paul, Taxi Driver, although on my backlist Hall of Shame, as you so properly foreshadowed earlier, is sort of relevant again here in 2019, 43 years later. What's what yeah, comes with so, that? Yeah, so here's the deal. There's a little movie coming out. In October, First week of October. I believe, uh, called The Joker. It stars Joaquin Phoenix. Um, it obviously starts or it features Batman's favorite villain. Um, in a, in a, or least favorite, depending on how you do Or that. least favorite, yeah. But when you look at the trailers, it looks very, very taxi driver-esque. What you see is is Joker in, in at least the trailers that we've seen. Um, he looks like a Travis Bickle character. Travis Bickle is the main star of, of Taxi Driver, but you see this really gritty late 70s, early 80s New York where everything's just so going down the tubes and you have this disaffected man who's at the heart of it. And this disaffected man is the Joker, the person who becomes the Joker. And so you hear a lot of talk about how it feels very, very much like Taxi Driver. Martin Scorsese, who directed Taxi Driver, was actually supposed to be one of the executive producers for this. Um, but he, he had to bow out because of conflicts, you know, um, scheduling conflicts. But clearly, they are going for a very Taxi Driver, disaffected, anti-hero type of a vibe. And it makes me all the more um, compelled to see this movie. Compelled or and or nervous is what I'm oh, seeing yeah. a lot of oh, yeah. online because, and that was something that I was struck by when watching Taxi Driver, even before the longer trailers for Joker came out and these comparisons started being made. Um, I watched it on a plane to Washington D.C. and I just remember thinking as I was watching it, um, "Boy, this feels." like eerily prescient right. to our current moment, even right. though it was f- over four decades old at this point. Yeah. And and as we watch this young, Caucasian, disaffected male character descend into madness and violence. Right. And, uh, and you know, it, it felt eerie when we look at the headlines. Oh, yeah. No, the last absolutely. Of years. Absolutely. I mean, and I think that that's... To talk both about Taxi Driver and Joker, that's that's one of the things that I've read about in some of these early reviews is that is that Joker feels almost too of the moment. You know, you have all these all these chaotic mass shootings, these these disaffected people who want to, you know, to, to use a phrase from another Batman movie, want to watch the world burn. And that is also sort of the character that we find in Travis Pickle in, in Taxi Driver. He is he is in the middle of a city, gritty, grimy. He's having mental health problems. He's an old Vietnam vet, so he probably is dealing with some stuff from, from that. He can't sleep, so he gets this job as a taxi driver. And as a taxi driver, he sees the absolute worst part of New York City. He sees uh, the the dregs of, of the city essentially get get into his taxi every single time. He has to see the worst of humanity night in, night out. Um, it's almost this this hellish landscape. And when you look at, at Travis Pickle as he goes through this time, he becomes to develop through his insomnia, through his mental issues. He begins to develop this idea that the whole thing needs to burn down. He sort of has this sense that New York City is beyond saving and somehow he's got to do something about the sin and corruption that he sees. Right. 
and and it's a slow burn for him like cinematically this was something that i thought worked really well on behalf of uh on, with scorsese's work on this film is that as much as i've railed on movies for having struggles with pacing <laughs> um the the slow burn inside Taxi Driver felt very deliberate to me. Right. And and I felt like it built the tension and it ate away and frayed at Travis Bickle's sanity in in a very tangible way for you as the viewer. Right. Um, which left me in the end both compelled by the story and the effectiveness of it, but also disquieted because it 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 ends and this is a spoiler alert for all of you that are living in 1976, <laughs> it ends in such a way as to, uh, well, uh, well, let's talk about this a little bit. The ending yeah. Is, yeah. is particularly uh, controversial right. because people have different views on how it actually ended and whether it tries to tie a tidy bow on it or whether it's just another manifestation of the madness. You bet, you bet. I wanted to go back to one thing that you happened to say, though, during yeah, yeah. during. What you were talking about, the idea that that you could see his sanity fraying, and I really like that word because I think oftentimes when we see these types of movies, the 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 movies that deal with insanity, you see a snap, you right. see like a rubber band that snaps apart, and when you're talking about the slow burn of Taxi Driver, that's what you the word you used is absolutely right. It's a fraying. You can see thread by thread, bit by bit, him falling deeper and deeper into this sense of mental chaos and anguish over what he does. Um, it's a it's a tremendous portrayal, and I think that, that you're absolutely right. I think that the the slow burn that Scorsese is able to do here really works. Um, essentially, what happens? is as as Travis sort of gets sucked into this this hellish landscape of New York City it almost feels like he has two prongs that he could go one he decides that he wants to assassinate a really powerful political leader two he meets this 12-year-old prostitute who all of a sudden he develops this sincere affection for, this almost fatherly affection for, and and he wants to try to get her out of the world that he's in. And so you have this tension as the movie sort of winds down to a close. You have this tension between these two goals, whether to assassinate him becomes this agent of chaos or to become this rescuer of this single girl. And he winds up doing both. He winds up essentially not killing the Attempting not killing exactly. He becomes this agent of chaos. He runs into sort of this this hotel where the the girl is being kept, and he kills pretty much everybody in the place. It's one of the most gory graphic um, scenes that I remember in cinema. I mean, I see this stuff all the time, but this was even striking for me when I watched it the second time um, to rescue this little girl. And at the end of this invasion that he does, you see him with blood streaming down his face. He's got this wound in his neck. And when, I think it's the police, yeah, the police show bust in, and he's just there on the couch, bleeding out, it looks like, holding a gun, a finger gun, essentially, to his head, and pulling the trigger again and again and again. And then it cuts to a really unusual scene. Yeah, the the fact that we then jump from there in this crime scene, everything's terrible, to Travis Pickles in the hospital, and the headlines are trumpeting this hero who saved a young girl and restored her to his family, and you hear him in a voiceover talking about how the family has thanked him and sent him a letter for being such a hero. Uh, I believe the voiceover is him writing a letter to his parents, presumably. Am I remembering that correctly? Oh, I think he does that multiple times in the right. movie. Yeah, from what I remember, I I remember seeing the letter when he when he's actually reading the letter from the parents. You see yeah. all these clippings that are sort of praising his act of courage, yeah. and then you see him getting into his taxi, right, and going back into it, and going back into it. He meets the uh, the the girl that he really liked, not the girl, the woman that he really liked for a long time. Um, she gets into his taxi cab, and he essentially has the ability to to say, 
boy, it's so nice to see you again. I'm really not interested anymore. Even though all of a sudden she is very interested in him. Right. That was kind of the sense that you get, right? Right. He sort of, it all sort of gives him this vindication. He was able to help clean up some of the crime and grit that he hated in New York City, as well as spurn the woman that spurned him, you know, and turn the the tables on her is sort of the implication there. And, And so it almost feels like, in a sense, like a weird fulfillment of all of his dark mad fantasies. Right. And there's there's been a lot of debate over that ending. Is it real or is it not? Is it the the fevered fantasy of of a dying vigilante or is this something that could have happened? And I think you and I have two different takes on this, right? Right. Yeah, to me, I don't think um I I don't I don't quite Although I understand how people can get there into this being a fantasy, I don't quite agree with that because I don't think Scorsese gives us this the filmmaking, any hints in the filmmaking that would indicate that that was the case. And so it's to me, you have to sort of buy into that he just expects you to have, you know, to, to come up with this crazy theory with no context whatsoever to say that this was a dream or a fantasy because we, he hasn't been using this effect elsewhere. Even as we've seen uh, Travis Bickle's mind fray, we're always, uh, and he's an unreliable narrator, but, right, but they right. don't, He we haven't seen him visually play with that by showing us two di- different versions of reality, like his right. version versus the real version. We're just observing an unreliable character and I and, it, and so I feel like the way most of the movie is framed, even yeah. though Travis gets a narrative point or gets a narrative point of view at times, the movie is observing Travis rather than truly in my visually rather than uh, letting him tell his story visually is the sense that I got watching most of the movie. So for it to suddenly shift into his madness without any form of uh, narrative or visual tell. Even a subtle one that maybe I just totally missed it, but I didn't find that. So, like, it would to me, it would seem like it's a bit far fetched and almost. And so, my sense was that Scorsese just decided this is too dark, and I need to get I need to give it like a little bit of a happy ending. Like something's got to go right because it is a, a, a crazy dark movie. It is a crazy dark movie at the end, and so that's why I still. Although I understand the case for it being right, his fantasy, it just it would be a really clumsy move in an otherwise pretty artfully yeah. done movie, in my opinion. I wholly and totally disagree with you. It was a brilliant ending, and it was completely fabricated by Travis Travis Bickle. I think you know, and, and the reason why I say this is is you're right. There's not really, at least as far as I can recall, and I almost want to watch this again just to, just, just to triple to, check, just to triple check, because I think that that he wanted the ambiguous ending. Ending first of all, he wanted to keep readers guessing. It's almost sort of like the uh, the spinning top from that one sure. movie whatever it was, Leonardo DiCaprio. Anyway, um, and the whole the whole movie really has, especially when De Niro, the Travis Bickle character, is in his taxi, it has this very dreamlike quality. And from what I remember at the end, you do have this, this sort of wash of lights coming to and fro. And really, the end of the movie is just him in his taxi cab. And you just see those lights pouring through almost like like liquid color. And when the woman gets into the back of his taxi, I'm not sure if this is completely right, but you mainly see her just from the rearview mirror, which lends itself to yet another dose of unreality. Is she there? Is she, is she not there? Sure. She's almost like this angelic figure who's sort of hovering literally over his shoulder. And so I think that you have some some elements that suggest that this is really too pat. This this ending is too perfect. I and and you just think about the the horrific scene of carnage that we see before. You had a really good point when we were talking about this earlier that in today's society you can make an argument that 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 kind of bloodshed for a righteous cause might be embraced by some because that's just sort of the culture we're in. And it probably was the culture back in 1976. And yet, 
to see that level of, of destruction, this human destruction that, that Travis Bickle brings upon his adversaries, I think is it's hard to believe that a person like that would be treated as an unquestioned hero. Sure. And I, I think that and and I think that's where I kind of wonder if people that are bothered by that are trying to impose the ending on the top of it. And and it would be worth potentially triple checking just to see if Scorsese yeah. gives any other clues because I don't think he's spoken personally about this. He's kind of left it to the I think he has. He's yeah. kind of left it to the speculation because, and I get that as a filmmaker, yeah. like, hey, if you're getting all this attention for it, like, why clear the air? Like, that was sort of part right. of the problem with uh, uh, George Lucas re-editing. Well, exactly. The Han Solo shot first scene, where it's like, you know what? Part of the, the speculation was fun and letting people have yeah. their point of views, but then by clearing it up, you sort of ruined this little bit of magic in the uh, yeah. in the unknown here. But that's where, to me, it feels like. People were disquieted by this film, rightfully so. Right. And uh, it reminded me of actually something I heard um, um, Jordan Peele say after uh, Get Out. He made right. Get Out. You've seen Get Out, right? Right, right, right. So yeah. there's a spoiler here for Get Out, which is several years old, um, but you can skip ahead for a while. Here's your space to do that if you don't want to get out spoiler. All right, I'm back. Um, <laughs> Jordan Peele said uh, that he actually changed the ending to Get Out and made it happier and and made it more tied a bow on it in not an entirely dissimilar way to how I felt about the taxi right. driver ending because uh, the, uh, his reasoning was because he started making the movie, he had the story in mind when Barack Obama was the president, but he wanted it to be a kind of an allegory to this lurking threat of white supremacy and racism still lying underneath a thin veneer of good behavior in the culture. And he wanted to expose that. So he wanted this really unsettling ending. So the original ending to get out was actually, uh, instead of the, the, the guy's buddy rolling up and saving him, it was the cops rolling up and fingering him for murdering this whole family of white people and burning their house down and him going to jail for it. Wow. And staying in jail for it. And that's, that's really that's interesting. That's on the DVD and Blu-ray yeah. version, that original ending. And it's haunting. Like, I watched it on there. But then, uh, the mo- like, before the movie could come out, President, uh, the, the election happened and Donald Trump was elected president. And even before the election, like, we saw this undercurrent of racism right, right, being right. exposed. Right. And coming out of the woodworks. And so before his his movie's done, but he's like, oh, no, now everybody's seeing it. So right. I'm too late right, right. to warn them about it. But now my movie's going to seem too dark and hopeless. And now so all of a sudden changed, you need this sense of hope. Exactly. So he changed his ending to kind of give it this happy ending to try to, to make up. for That wasn't the original story. That's interesting. And so I almost wonder if Scorsese was doing the same kind of thing to say, I got this really dark movie, but I'm like, in the, uh, but people want to love the anti-hero. I'm going to give it a, a thin veneer. And then people were actually ended up being so disquieted even by that, that they're like, this has to be a fantasy. This can't yeah, be a no, good thing. No. I And I mean, I think, I think that, that when you, there's always this debate about movies, right? Art or entertainment. I think the distinction between art and entertainment in some ways is that entertainment is essentially a consumer product. You give the people what you what they want. Art becomes something where it's the artist trying to convey something. But a lot of times the artist leaves it up to the to the people who are observing the art that they're looking at what they take away from it. And I think when you see Taxi Driver you see that it really does sort of make the full leap into art where because it's so ambiguous, because the ending is so strange, all of a sudden it becomes, you know, maybe it becomes less about the movie and more about the people who are watching it. Could be. Scorsese, what do you think? Let us know. <laughs> is Paul, are Paul and all these other people just reading stuff on here? <laughs> Because it's really not actually ambiguous. It's you have to invent the ambiguity. Oh, you don't have you to do. invent the ambiguity. Yeah, you do. No, no, no. Yeah. It's it's like the Giver. Have you read the Giver? I have read the Giver. So, so you have that that end scene where they're they're doing the sled down to the uh-huh. to the cabin, uh-huh. right? Yeah. So, 
it's the same sort of thing. Do they actually see that cabin out of the blue when they're on their very last legs, or is it the, just sort of this this beautiful fade into almost sort of like a heavenly thing where they don't necessarily reach a literal cabin, but they figuratively have escaped? Sure. I could buy that if there was that sort of fade to it, but there's not. It just transitions yeah. into this is what happened. Oh, you're so wrong. <laughs> What do you think about Taxi Driver? Have you seen it in the last 40 years? <laughs> last couple of months, like me? Bring your thoughts to us. I'm on Twitter at, at Jake underscore Roberson. I'm at AC Paul. But now it's time for Stranger Things Season 3. Well, things in Hawkins, Indiana, are as strange as always. Stranger. And possibly even stranger. And there are things. Let's talk about Stranger Things. Yeah. Season three, two months later. But this is the spoilery dive-in. <laughs> this isn't none of that namby-pamby... Well, Spoiler warning. there's people in Hawkins, and, like, stuff happens, and, like, maybe another country's involved, and, I don't know, like... Multi-dimensional beings. Oh, I spoiled that already. <laughs> so that's my that's my impression. Let me. That was my impression of Paul doing a non-spoiler. See, podcast. that really offends me. Actually, <laughs> I am super offended. Walk off. The Although set. I am, I am a big fan of preserving spoilers. But it's been two months, and yeah. really, everybody who is really into Stranger Things, they saw it within the first two days. Absolutely. That is actually... My sister and I, my younger sister and I, had a thing with the first... uh, uh, the earlier seasons of Stranger Things, like where we watched the first season independently, but then the second season came out. I was like, well, we should enjoy this together, but we should do it the old-fashioned way. Watch it week by week by week. Week by week. One episode a week. And that was a lot of fun. But then my sister moves to Washington, D.C., and... Uh, just so happens that one of my secret trips to Washington, D.C. was after the show, like days after the show released. And we're like, well, we've got two nights. And we binged it two nights. <laughs> two nights. Shout that's out actually pretty to awesome. my sister, that's, Anna. That's good. That's that's really good that's sibling right. We got some time. Korean, spicy Korean wings and some Indian food and some brewskis. And we just really enjoyed Stranger Things Season 3. But not all of it. <laughs> and that's what we're here to talk about today. <laughs> Paul, how was your binging experience? You know, I don't binge, you know, because I'm old and I can't stay up that late yeah. for the most part. But right. but we did get through it in a week, a week and a half. See, that's I mean, pretty good for me. about two episodes a night then, Well, and, right? and see, here's the thing. I tend to, and, and actually we're doing this at, at my house. My wife and I are perpetually fighting. We're watching your favorite show, Parks and Recreation. One right? of my favorites, not the favorite. Your favorite, still, favorite, favorite show. Favorite Parks show. and Rec is great. So, it, but she wants to watch like seventeen episodes <laughs> a night, and I want to actually watch like a couple episodes and then wait for a few days sure. before we let watch it, another. Let it soak in. Let it settle. Exactly. Also, because you, you do don't want to get oversaturated. Exactly. And your wife is a scientist for a living. And so, sure, she needs to, you know, clear her mind of all that boring science junk. Yeah. But we did get through Stranger Things fairly no quickly. Wendy. Because here's the thing. In this age of binging, you almost have to watch this stuff as fast as you can because otherwise people will not want to talk with you about it because yeah. they've already watched it and like, it's done. Oh, that was so five years ago. Yeah. Like, like That was in July. Yeah. If you wait two months to talk about Stranger Things, <laughs> you're totally missing the boat. This is Paul's <laughs> passive-aggressive way of telling me that we should have come up with another show topic, but I said no. <laughs> we promised that we'd talk about Stranger Things Season 3, and we will, and we are. All right, we'll keep your promise. Talk about it. We'll talk about something what? on the next show. <laughs> All right, I just want to, like, I got to get my number one hot take out right, okay. out, right out of the Your lukewarm take. And, like, what in the world was up with the weird, like, Stacy's mom garbage that they had going on between Mike's mom and Billy in that those first, like, two episodes? That was a weird thing, wasn't it? 
super weird, super gratuitous. It didn't factor into any character development yeah. for either of them. Didn't further the plot at all. It was just like, hey, how can we put Mike's mom in a bathing suit and have her lust after a recently graduated high schooler? Yeah, you know what? It was I... like, that's a terrible way to start a TV show. Well, it was sort of interesting, I do have to say. I think that actually it was, you know how Stranger Things is always about, like, these callbacks to the 1980s, right? So Is that a thing of the 80s? <laughs> Moms going to the pool to well, hit on the lifeguards? here's the thing. All these movies, I'm a child of the 80s. Every movie that I saw had, like, this weird relationship. Well, not every movie that I saw. But a lot of them had this this subtext of, like, these teens and these hot moms and the weirdness that was going on there. So I think that there is actually sort of an, an element to that, that that was actually just sort of meant to be a throwback. Now, that's a ter- in this day and age, though, that's a terrible no, throwback. I, the movies of the eight. You're right. The movies of the eighties, in particular, are notorious. Articles have been written about this at this point. They are being so... crazy, like off yeah. in their regard to like sexuality and gender relationships. The way you know, even Revenge of the Nerds, this comedy cult classic from the eighties, had a scene of rape in it. Oh, I know. And it played for laughs. Oh, I know. I know. They just dim the lights in our studio. Hope yeah. I remember we're in here. Well, it's Anyways. probably because we're going off, off so, topic here. But. Yeah, and that's, you know, and then you had, like, what was it? Uh, weird, um, geniuses, weird Geniuses. What was that movie where they create their own, like, sentient sex bot? Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. That was one I did not Real see. Real Genius. I don't I don't watch movies that have sentient like, but those sex were, bots. But those were the movies of the 80s. No, and movies of and the 80s. And a bad part of the 80s. Honestly, a bad relic. Honestly, people talk about how movies are getting worse and worse and worse, right? The movies of the 80s might not have been as violent or in some ways as as bad, but the morals in those movies were just terrible. The movie that I was actually thinking of when when I thought about this sort of mom-kid-teen thing, I was thinking of Michael J. Fox's The Secret of My Success, 1987. Yeah, so there is definitely a lot of precedent in the 80s the thing is, though, your point is still valid because the the folks who make Stranger Things throw in a bunch of 80s Easter eggs, but they usually don't go over the, the course of two episodes right. and become sort of this subplot point. Right. And so it did feel it did feel gratuitous. Right. I, I agree. The only thing that could potentially and I, I hesitate to use the word redeem here makes sense of it to me is it seems like so far in seasons two and three, there's been something from the previous season that didn't seem to make a whole lot of sense why they made certain choices that ended up playing into a later season. Uh, Like, um, oh, why is my mind just playing? Oh, Billy in this season. Right. Where we got to see some of Billy's brokenness in season two, but they didn't really end up doing anything with it. Like right. in season two, we're like, what was all this focus on him and his bad attitude and his, yeah. you know, bravado machismo that he puts on. And that was never solved or, you know, uh, even really spoken to beyond just showing it a little right. bit in season two. But then they throughout the course of this, not with Mike's mom, but throughout the course of this movie, they start to play with it a right. little bit more. Um, and you know what? As I'm talking, maybe they were. I'll I'll go with your Scorsese example here, because uh, this is my tangent. One is to say, maybe in season four they'll play with the character of Mike's mom, right? More and Mike's dad, and, and Mike's dad and their relationship and how that and that'll impact season four of Stranger Things. Tangent that I just thought of. Perhaps that was I can I can. Perhaps that has to do with the fact that he has mommy issues. That we discover in this season. That he really misses his mom. That he was ripped away from his mom at too young of an age. Wow. And then sort of mentally and emotionally abused by his dad. Yeah. And we don't quite know why his mom was ripped out of his life, whether it was through death, whether it was through her leaving. Um, I think they kind of left that ambiguous. Yeah. But the sense was that his inner turmoil was that he had this wonderful relationship with his mom that turned into this massive wound 
and then was you know sort of then abuse just po- uh, abuse on top of abuse emotionally physically in yeah. his life and perhaps this is a weird manifestation of that for his character and it was maybe less about Mike's mom and more just about how he was eating up that adulation as a twisted uh, twisted perversion of sure the affection he had for his own mom sure perhaps a, there's a bit of an Oedipal thing going on yeah yeah no that's a that's an alarming bit of insight from you Jake I'm not used to that from you. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> no, I think I think that that what you say is very valid, and I think that that really, if you if you spent a lot of time watching Stranger Things, I think you'd see some more stuff going on with these characters than might initially meet the eye. Um, although, in light of that, when I think to poor Joyce, she should be way more screwed up than she <laughs> actually is. Boy, oh my goodness. She is... It she is just has, rough for Joyce. She every single season of Stranger Things, she has to suffer some sort of humongous, humongous problem. Loss. Yeah, well, sometimes multiple ones in the same yeah season. Yeah, right? you know, oh, my son's infested with this <laughs> multi-dimensional thing taking over his mind, and also my boyfriend who I love Was just got horribly eviscerated by another multi-dimensional. I being. watched him get eaten alive. Screaming, and then and then this season we'll just jump right to the end. Sure, let's do it. I mean, from beginning to end, the the guy who she's starting to like again, good old Sheriff Hopper, Senior Sheriff Hopper. All of a sudden, he sacrifices himself just like her old boyfriend did, and and dies. Well, not horribly, just vanishes in in a poof of dust essentially true we don't know how painful it was or was not right it could have been painless it and honestly i think he could still be alive but we're for dealing, joyce we're dealing with multiple dimensions he could be alive but yeah for joyce it's it's the same he, process yeah. of death yeah he she died. is she is seriously scarred. She's going to need some counseling, and I know that wasn't a big thing in the '80s, but I think she needs some. Yeah, I mean, last therapy. we see her at the end of Stranger Things season three, she's trying to run away from her problems, and it's like, Joyce, these are multi-dimensional beings and Russians. You can't get away <laughs> from your problems. Like, where are you gonna go? Multi-dimensional beings yeah, and they're... Russians. <laughs> You can't. This is the 1980s. You can't escape. There's nowhere the you can go that you can escape. Like one of those two things is going to be there. There, there are monsters and Russians. That's just the fact those, of the 80s. Yeah, it really was actually. That that's pretty much my childhood. That's right. Monsters, Russians. Yeah, and, and so I, I want a little bit. You know, since you jumped to the end. Before we jump back to the middle, let's jump to the future. <laughs> let's jump right? to the, yeah, 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 yeah. What do you think is going to be sort of that undercurrent of fear that, like, of eighties fear that they're going to be dre- like dredging for nostalgia in season four? Because I think if you look at it, season one was like if you look sort of at the take a step back, look at the thirty thousand foot view. It's the fear of Dungeons and Dragons and these role playing fantasy games that are causing our children to. You know, I talk to other dimensions and demons and invite demons into the real world. There was a lot of that around stuff like Dungeons and Dragons in the 80s. Right. And then, and so it was like they were sort of playfully saying, well, yeah, what if that was the case? Mm-hmm. Then in season two, although that was still a presence, right, we still are dealing with sure. the upside down. Sure. It seemed like the, the overarching fear that they were playing on was of shadow government agencies and MK Ultra and all these experiments that the US government has done on its own citizens and you know that was another prominent thing you know I didn't know about that because I sure. wasn't, I didn't spend a whole lot of time in the 80s myself but since then I've looked into some of the MK Ultra stuff and that was a big fear in right. the shadowy government oh, yeah. agencies that aren't trustworthy and then of course now in season 3 the Russians and how they're using the malls and you know secret bases and stuff like that and so then you had the other the Russian threat right. that was right. very prominent in the 80s so I wonder if you accept my premise of those three fears being mined sort of for fun yeah. in Stranger Things season 1, 2 and 3 what might it be in season 4? Parachute pants Parachute pants? Yeah. Yeah. They were a terrifying thing back that, in the like 80s. That, Mullets? What, no. For you, maybe. Yeah. I because never got a pair of parachute pants. Yeah, you couldn't rock them. No, I, I couldn't. I was way too skinny. They didn't fit the way they should. <laughs> no, I think I, it's an interesting question. And, and you know, when I think back to the movies, the, the scary movies of the 1980s, 
Stranger Things has always been sort of about Stephen King and Steven Spielberg in sort of equal measures. I think that they've sort of played that pretty well out in some ways. I mean, I think that you can still hold on to those. But but when I think about the really effective horror movies of the 1980s, I think... I don't know if they're going to go here because it might just be a little bit too dark. And I think that as Stranger Things has gone on, it's grown almost a little more funny. I would agree. But I think of The Shining. And when we talk about... Maybe this is just being affected by the podcast, but you think about Travis Bickle. Mm-hmm. You think about Joyce and her terrible tragedies that have gone on with her life. That's got to have some scars. What if there was a sense that this pillar of this show was slowly sinking into madness as these terrible things are going around? I think that that would be that would be a pretty compelling, although much darker version of Stranger Things. You know, it would. But I think uh, honestly, although um, it's much more realistic than my prediction, which was going to be welfare queens and immigrants. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I think fittingly the the Joyce and the the personal madness and the mental health that she's suffering right. and the trauma I think that not only fits with the arc of the show and how much time and attention they've spent on her as a character right. throughout it all but it also fits um uh, with the fear like you said of the 80s and now again of our current time as right. mental health has reemerged as a predominant fear for many of us mm-hmm. as many of us deal with it in different forms and yeah. wrestle with the effects that it might have on other people. Well, and I think that one of the, the greatest fears that we have, and this is revisited again and again and again in horror movies, is the idea of something trusted that can't be trusted. And I think that Stranger Things has already played with they this, did play this that theme. Specifically in season three. Especially in season three, where you have these people. It sort of becomes sort of this invasion of the body snatchers right. type of a thing. But again, you go back to The Fly, you think about um, The Thing, which is mm-hmm. referenced over and over and over again in Stranger Things. You have these elements of things are not quite what they seem. And I think that, that really that would be a pretty terrifying. Um, and in dark way for the series to go, if it decided to go that way, I kind of hope it doesn't. Honestly, because because one of the charms of Stranger Things, it's interesting that you like Stranger Things as much as you do, given your hatred of horror movies. Yeah, it really has it has that sort of lightness to it, even though it's essentially this horror story. Because the kids are so likable, because the parents are so likable, it has this lightness to it even as there's a lot of peril to, to deal with. Sure. And to lose that lightness, I think, would be to lose some of the magic of Stranger Things. Right. That's That would obvi- be the obvious pitfall they would need to avoid, is that it would be really easy to get really dark, but that's part of what has made the series so fun. And uh, honestly, I think what kind of saved Season 3, in my opinion, um, because in many ways it could have felt like another right. retread right. Um, because we were still dealing with the upside down and the Russians weren't like fully developed. Right. They, they remained sort of like a C plot line. Right. More involved, obviously, than the first uh, couple of seasons. But um, I thought that the humor ended up making this feel distinctive and helping endear some of the characters to us in new ways. Uh, and, and honestly, I felt like that made season three worth watching was the ability to keep it light even in the midst of these tensions and I I mean I get that there are some tropes from the horror like many tropes sure but it it, it, Stranger Things really does feel more thriller uh, like paranormal thriller to me than Mm. it does horror and and I think in no small part due to the fact that it relies so heavily on humor. Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting because when I I think that that Stranger Things two was out at the same time that I reviewed it, the first one, mm-hmm. and in some ways they felt very similar. You yeah. know, obviously it was an R rated horror movie and it, it was really horrific in a lot of spots, but you still had these kids, you still had a lot of humor, you still had those moments that, that lightened it up, and instead of feeling heavy and oppressive like a lot of horror movies do this one felt like scary fun and that's that feels like what stranger things the charm of stranger things really it's sort of this this dark thrilling uh, 
thrill ride that that makes you uneasy and yet pulls you along. It's like a roller coaster, you right. know, the unexpected twists and turns, and and it just it just makes you happy to be along for the ride. Right. It manages to find a really good balance of never getting so grim or gruesome as to make you abandon ship. Although there are moments where it gets gruesome. It does get gruesome. The the most outrageous thing and it shows that this movie or this this television show really has confidence in itself mm-hmm. that the climactic moment was essentially this duet of the never-ending story, you know? Mm-hmm. Right. Where you have this this really it, it's the climax and yet it's resolved in a sense by this ludicrous Duet by by two pretty geeky characters. That's right. There was a, there was a lot of fun moments like that. I really loved how they've continued to develop Steve's character. Oh, Steve! And He's my favorite character in the yeah, thing now. The way they've adapted him over time reminds me a lot of sort of like, except in a very different way, but just in terms of arc, what they did with um, the character of Andy in Parks right. and Rec, right. where he starts off as this more serious and. And sort of like a douchey character that you're like, he's kind of a jerk and he's not great and I don't uh, I just don't really like yeah. him too. Like all of a sudden, oh, maybe he's a little bit more lovable and goofy and he was just putting on this facade. Yeah. And oh, now all of a sudden he's full blown. I don't know what to do with my life, but I, <laughs> yeah. I enjoy people and I enjoy hanging out and I'm holding on to my childhood through Destin, but trying to be dragged into adulthood by all these problems. And yeah. he just becomes this real goofy, fun loving character that. Yeah. That's a lot of levity. It's it's really interesting because, you know, in the first season, he was essentially Stranger Things version of Snape, right? Sure. You didn't know whether he was good or bad. and you, I really did go episode to episode thinking, ah, oh, this guy's a jerk. Oh, I kind of yeah. like him. And then he just sort of grew into this more redemptive character that just, I thought season two was probably actually Steve's high point. But you got to like Steve in his sailor suit, you know? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I would say it was his high point in terms of character and that he's taking some more leadership in the midst of this terrible situation. He's risking his life. Risking his you life. Know? You know, he doesn't quite get as many heroic moments yeah. in season three, but he's a lot funnier. <laughs> he, is. <laughs> he is. He's pretty funny. Which is points in my book, Steve. Keep it up. <laughs> Um, did you have any comments about the middle of Stranger Things season three? <laughs> yeah, we just jumped right right straight through. You know, I think I was here's here's my takeaway, and in and, and this does sort of get to the middle of it. I, I didn't think that the monsters, the taking over of the of the characters, it didn't work as well for me as I think the previous incarnations of the upside down worked. You know, I thought that I thought that I could I completely understood where they were going and why, but it just didn't feel as resonant to me. Right. There wasn't there wasn't an element of surprise to it right. after the right. first. I like the, the freaking episode. Yeah. yeah, there was yeah. a bit of freakiness, but it it they lost the element of surprise, and I think yeah. they knew that they knew they couldn't yeah. rest on that, and so they show it to you pretty quick. And then, so it really fails to build any, like, then they're building tension. Okay, what are they building right. this army of things for and, like, why? Right, and then... And then it just turns out they were food? Yeah, why absorb those people? I mean, it seems like... Why not just absorb go, them right away? Well, or go full invasion of the body snatchers where you never know who to trust. They, right. they absorbed and all of a sudden you have this this creature who looks pretty cool. But um, but it just didn't work narratively. I, I thought that I thought the monster was just kind of dumb. You know, the motivation just right. didn't work for me. Um, I did think it was interesting that Eleven lost her powers. Yeah, you know, yeah, I'll be curious to see how they play with that. You know, with Hopper being gone in season Although, four, maybe being gone, her powers. I have Although, a theory of that. Probably being gone, seeming to be gone at this point. Uh, Joyce and her sons being gone and out of town, like. What is who what, is Joyce going to lose? Yeah, in what, season is, what four? is season four going to look like? You know, what's going to bring Joyce and her kids back? Or are they going to come back at no, all? I, is Hopper going to be back? Or are the powers going to come back? Is Hopper right now inside the Upside Down turning into a post-apocalyptic warrior? No, man? you know where Hopper is. I think he's, he's in he Russia. No, oh, you think he's in Russia? Yeah, I think actually, I think that the people who who quote unquote died at the end, they didn't. They die. all got zapped to Russia. They all got zapped to Russia. I'm telling you. How is he going to get out of Russia? Is he going to zap himself back to Hawkins? Well, that's a good question. Underneath the mall? Maybe they'll shift over to Russia. It would be, maybe they'll have a new new group of, who knows? And there'll be some Russian analogs to these kids. 
one never knows with Stranger Things. Who are riding wooden bicycles. Yeah, I, I don't think the 80s audience would accept Russians as, as good people, though. I think it'd be, uh, yeah, and I think it'd just be, you know, you got a translation. There's too many, I mean, it's just not realistic. <laughs> <laughs> no way they can yeah. do that. Yeah, it's exactly. not realistic. Stranger Things has always been a paragon of realism. No, I think Hopper got zapped into the Upside Down, mm. and he's spending the next however long they're going to leave him in the Upside Down, just turning into this battle-hardened, like, post-apocalyptic-esque warrior guy, you know, who is just going to come back in the nick of time and just have this new have arsenal of tricks, strung right? across his... Yeah, he's going to create these crazy be. interdimensional weapons, you know, because he's just so smart and... Here's the thing. The it's 80s MacGyver. Thing? He's well, going to no, MacGyver no. his way out. It's going to be Rambo. MacGyver meets Rambo. Exactly. Just like Stephen King meets no. Steven Spielberg. Because the 80s was really like Macrambo. the... It was... MacRambo. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> it, was, it was the pinnacle of like these 80s action movies, right? right? You got Mel Gibson, you got Schwarzenegger, you got Stallone, all these huge action heroes... I wouldn't be surprised if they do a McRambo. McRambo! (laughs) Please, please, McRambo. I need to see it. I want to see it. Do you have any other theories about... And I already gave you my theory. (laughs) That's my theory. Will Elle get her powers back? Uh, You know, here's the the thing that scares me, honestly, about season four. But I was scared about this for season three. These kids are going through puberty. Will they be as likable? Will they be all goofy and weird? Are you saying kids can't be likable after they go through puberty? (laughs) That would explain a lot about our dynamic. I think that's really true. (laughs) There is this weird time where, you know, you just want to go from kid to adult. The teen years are not necessarily, you know. The happiest of times. Not always the kindest. I, but I know that from experience. Great did you have awkward teen years? I know I did. I don't think. Uh, I don't think I had all the quintessential like awkward yeah. teen moments. But I definitely had some of them. You know, like where you just you couldn't read the signals in the boy-girl relationships, and so you totally miss things. Like, there was a moment in time where the girl that I had a crush on, I was at her house, and she like <laughs> lays herself out on the couch. <laughs> Like, top of the couch behind me as I'm <laughs> sitting there. And I had no clue that it was a signal that she could be interested in any way. Like, way over my head until years later when I was like, that happened. And I we, I never told her I liked her. Nothing. Like, it's all worked out since then. But I was like, that's an awkward teen moment. Like, that is an awkward that, teen moment. I, like, we almost feel bad for her. She's trying to put like make her interest known to yeah. the clueless teen boy. And oh. he's just sitting there watching football. And nothing. Yeah. No register. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I had awkward moments, but I was also, like, I grew really fast. Yeah. And I was good at sports. And so I think I, I, think I missed... I didn't really realize what I was opening up when I asked you this. But yeah, you know, you're really unpacking my ego here. <laughs> I was just, I was starting on all the sports teams. Yeah, yeah, you were I the was, football guy. I was you the were... captain of the football team, you know, 7th and 8th grade. You know, oh, God. I was a head taller than everybody, you know. I was just this man-child that, like... I think some awkward, that's right. I think some <laughs> awkward moments like I just missed because I had the right body shape. Like honestly, you know, where people yeah, are like, no. "Am I going to mess with guy, this guy and die?" Yeah, no. And so they didn't mess with me, um, and so I just had to create my own awkward moments. <laughs> and I saved some of them for my senior year. Like my senior year when I went to public school because I was homeschooled, mm-hmm. so that also helped me avoid some of those awkward right. things. Yeah. Like because I had, mom's I had limited be interactions. sending you mixed signals, right? You know? I'm I'm at home and then I get to put my best stuff out on the sports field and then be this mysterious presence that leaves, right? <laughs> that guy is so mysterious. <laughs> where, he just is awesome at he football go? and he, he never Comes shows up in, at school. Comes in, throws four touchdowns, goes back home. He's great. He's like Batman. But then my senior year of high school, like I pack them all into one year when I decide to go to public school and like th- get dogpiled <laughs> in the middle of theater class and vomit all over the hallway. Oh, no. I'm doing, a, like we're going through our dance and choir and I'm in front of the whole class and I go to do this one move and my jeans split right in the front of the crotch and just open the entirety of my being to thankfully I was wearing underwear guys it's fine thankfully but I mean I just uh, I had those awkward teen moments I did (laughs) it does sound pretty concentrated senior year yeah I just had to pack them all into my year (laughs) 
<laughs> oh, so my go. goodness. You didn't have any. You just I never had right any. Through. No, of course not. That's of right. course not. I was always... You were the, kind of the same thing. Superstar, oh, yeah. athlete, <laughs> great singing voice, editor yeah. of the newspaper. Oh, like, my goodness. Adored really, we don't have, by every class. We really do not have enough time to talk about my awkward moments. We'll save we that really for don't. another episode <laughs> when we dive into Paul's personal life. I'll ambush him with that at some point. All right. He all did right. a pop culture ambush of me. It'll be my turn to do a pop culture ambush. It, it sounds but it'll fun. be like a high school, you know, awkward oh, yeah. moments ambush. Of oh, my goodness. The stories I could tell you. But what did you guys think of Stranger Things Season 3? What are your predictions for Stranger Things Season 4? What were your most awkward junior high and high school moments? Because we want to hear about We those. do want to hear about We don't really care about lot. Stranger Things yeah, because you know it's what? two months later. Yeah, if you don't want to talk about Stranger Things, it's fine. But could you share with us your favorite or least favorite awkward stories exactly. from junior high and high school? Exactly. In the name of research, you can share those with me on Twitter. I'm at Jake underscore Roberson. I'm at AC Paul. And now it's time for the most least important thing. Here we are at the most least important thing. It's the last stop on the journey of every episode that is pop culture with fanboy know-it-all. It's the location where we make mountains out of molehills and vice versa. Sometimes serious, sometimes funny, sometimes concise. Usually not, though. (laughs) Usually not. (laughs) Paul? I'm concise. What's your most least important thing? All right, so this actually is a throwback to Stranger Things. Whoa, Um, we talked about that like a whole couple weeks ago in Digital Time. (laughs) Exactly. No, okay, so we were talking about Billy and Mike's mom. That's right. The very oh, good. first I'm glad song. We're going to talk about this some more. Uh-huh. <laughs> the very first song we hear as Billy's walking past all those middle-aged women, right? It is "Moving in Stereo" by the Cars. Moving in Stereo by the Cars. And I have some very sad news. This is really sad news for me as a child of the yeah. 80s. I don't know anything about what. No. No. Really? Yep. Rick Ocasek, lead singer for the Cars, died. R.I.P. Rick Ocasek. 75 years old. I it's a really good life. think. You beat the average. If you don't know about the cars, I don't. Jake, you need to study up on the cars. They are the quintessential mm. 80s band. Like quintessential. What style? what style of music? No, it's it's got a little bit Because I did of... history of rock and roll and history of jazz, and not, they did not show up in either of those in my college Well, they're, they're not jazz, but they're, they've got a little bit of new wave in them. They're definitely super poppy. You've heard a lot of their songs. Uh-oh, it's magic. Drive, shake it up. Have you heard of shake it up? Not by name. Shake it up. <laughs> no, <laughs> but keep singing, please. No, it's a, it's it's really great. Everybody who knows anything about music is saying, "Jake, how can you not know about the Cars?" Sorry, everybody who knows anything about music. You might I think apologize you might you. think I'm crazy. I do. That should be your theme song. Is that a song? It is. A That's song. one of their songs. <laughs> it's one of their oh, songs. Okay. I thought you were just stating <laughs> no, a fact. About no, it. you like, might yes, think I'm true. crazy. I do think you're crazy. This is. I cannot believe you have not heard. <laughs> I'm sure that uh, obviously, obviously, this I've is, heard their music. This is since the definition I watched Stranger Things season three of the most least important thing because you think it's least, I think it's most. So I, I I feel bad for his family. I'm sorry, Rick. <laughs> Paulina Portacola. That was his. That was his wife. Who's that? Oh, <laughs> she was Sounds the most Russian beautiful. It, she was. She is. Well, nothing She's, good comes out of Russia. She is. Well, Paulina Portakova. Oh, my goodness. Wendy, I'm sorry. I'm trying she to. She was. Well, as a matter of fact, I had a I had a poster of Paulina oh Portakova in my dorm room when I met my wife, Wendy. Wow. Talk about awkward teen moments. <laughs> she... I'm so sorry, Wendy. Oh my goodness! How did she uh, was the most beautiful woman ever, and she married this skinny Rick Ocasek. It I don't was think crazy. you're legally allowed to say that. I think you always have to say second. <laughs> she was the yeah. That's true. <laughs> that is true. <laughs> I'm I'm reeling that back I'm in. I'm trying Wendy. so hard reeling to help it back you out in. here. <laughs> back yeah. <laughs> Is she also? Did she also R.I.P.? Is this a no? No, she's, she's still. She's, she's still 
she's fine. She's just IP. <laughs> but maybe <laughs> less peace, IP. No, yeah. Less IP. No, she's kind of sad. Yeah. You know? Mm-hmm. I think that they separated a while ago, but, you know. Oh, so but she might not be as sad as she might have been otherwise. Oh, my goodness. Still a little bit sad. <laughs> How sad are you, Petrina Koslav? Paulina Portsakova. Paulina Portsakova. Oh, she. Oh, my goodness. You do not know. Colin Portsakova. I know you pretend to like the 80s, but if you don't know either the Cars <laughs> or Paulina Portsakova, you have totally disqualified yourself. <laughs> I don't pretend to like the 80s. I just cherry-picked the best stuff out of the 80s, and I'm sorry if they didn't make it on the list. Oh, what's what's your most least important thing, Jake? I'm mine so is, discouraged now. Mine is much more serious, <laughs> and I don't say that ironically. I, I just need to know at what point are we um, – do we have to swear off like professional sports like the NFL? Oh, see, point. like, what are we supposed to do as as brains continue to erode hit after hit as the NFL continues to struggle with disciplining its players and personnel for uh, sleeping with traffic prostitutes, allegedly, and domestic violence, allegedly, and rape and sexual misconduct, allegedly. But yet we're we're cheering these people on. Antonio Brown goes out on the field and gets cheered on. Robert Kraft still owns the New England Patriots, and I'm wrestle. I'm honestly wrestling with my moral obligation as someone who really enjoys the game of football. At what point is it immoral for me to continue watching the game of football? Well, it's really a tricky question. So it totally is. I'm taking I, something and I'm saying, is this the least or most no, important thing? No, no. I mean, this is this is a really difficult question. And it's something, you know, it's something that I've been wrestling with for a few years now because you know that concussions are an issue. You know that that no matter how safe they try to make the sport, it's never going to be safe enough to prevent, you know, potentially some some bad Serious things from issues. happening to your brain. Robert, you know, Rob Gronkowski's and, talked about it recently. Andrew Lux talked about it recently in terms well, of the physical toll and mental toll. And the other thing that makes the NFL great, let's let's just be honest. One of the things that makes it so great and so appealing is the inherent violence in it. You can't Man on man, you can't make it flag out, football. Know? So, so it becomes a really difficult thing to to sort of wade through those moral issues. Um, it makes me a little bit bitter that you're ending this show on such a downer, but it's a real issue, you yeah. know. And, and as an old football guy like you, I mean, if you're wrestling with that, you know that that's that's something that's something that to to be considerate of. Right. It's tough because the game itself. I don't. I don't. Well, in, and in the midst of the game itself being a inherently physical, like bludgeoning sport, body right. on body, I actually don't have a problem with the sport itself, right? Because I think there's a level of that physicality between human beings, as mediated by sports. That's a good thing, and right. and, and it's not an inherently bad thing, right? And so I. I want to hold on to that. Like, that's the part of the sport that I love that I enjoyed playing for a huge portion of my life and played into college for a little bit. And I, um, but when the entities around it are morally questionable, when the rules as they exist today seem to permit this, the violence to a degree that is physically harmful on a long-term basis. Yeah. You know, and and that's what we're supposed to be cheering. That like so. At what point, and at what point is that line for the viewer? Yeah, to say these are people who are willingly engaging in this sport. They know the dangers. There's they know what they're immorality doing. and struggles with right. you know how to deal with broken people in any business. So you know, does that does does that inherently mean we have to throw it out? Right. But when so many seem to be concentrated in such a small and rich entity, well, it makes it hard. I don't think that when you're talking about when you talk about the the moral equation, I don't think that the people who go into football and are very good at football are man for man any worse than anybody else. You know, right? No, I think it's not really an issue with the character of those who choose to play. But I do think that. Because football is so popular, I do think that there's there's an issue of entitlement that sort of takes hold. And I think I think maybe you see this with the Antonio Brown situation, where you have people who have been coddled from junior high to high school to college into the pros 
where all of a sudden they they really do feel like they're they're better than the average person and thus have more license to get away with with more stuff. You know, could be though. In his case, I want to make the caveat that I I do obviously this is undiagnosed, so we can say allegedly. I do think there's got to be some mental health. Well, I think there's issues a, at play. There's some sp- in that case. Like, is he doing okay? You know, as a human being, I do yeah. wonder. It is a really goofy thing, and and it's it's hard to, and I don't mean goofy as in haha. Right. It's it's just a really hard road to walk. I think as a viewer, and I think that that we have a lot of those roads in some ways that we're we're trying to walk. How do we balance? the en- en- enjoyment that we have from certain things versus the cost that these things bring you know i i think that this is this is maybe a terrible comparison but i i think of environmental issues in in somewhat the same way you know you have you have these luxuries these these conveniences that um aren't necessarily good for the environment so how do you balance those things how where do you draw the line right you know and i think that that as we become more aware of ourselves, the world around us, the dangers involved with certain things, the cost of certain things, you are being asked in some ways to deal with these questions more and more and more. And it's draining. Yeah, It's, it's a good thing to ask these questions. And yet, I got to be honest with you, and, and sometimes... I kind of wish that I lived in a day where we didn't know so much and you could just go on being clueless about some right. of the things that we worry about now. The I don't know cliche, whether that... Yeah. Ignorance is bliss. And this was actually raised by a pop culture item. In addition to football being a pop culture item, The Good Place is wrestling with this sort of thing. I won't get into spoilers, but there was a big component of season three, wrestling with the more we become aware of how little actions of ours can be connected through the grapevine right to large immoralities how does that play into our goodness and badness right right well and we can know but at what level do, are we required to know to dig into to not dig into you know where is our culpability and right. that's a really tough thing for us to wrestle with but i think it pertains to the choices we make in you know what we watch whether it's watching something that is sexually exploitive and objectifying the human form in a degrading way or is yeah. violent and you know concussive to the human body in such a way that it could be uh, yeah. degrading to their physical form to the actions that we promote when we yeah you know idolize people to an unhealthy degree based on the culture we've created around them no it's I, it's, it's a it seems like that could be a whole podcast in and of itself well it really could be and and since i haven't gotten to mention spirituality once this podcast i'm just going to leave it here where you're talking a little bit about the difference between ignorance and willful sin in a way you know and i think that there there are definitely um you definitely feel the weight when you know the difference between right and wrong to choose right. And and that really does become a burden. Um, you know, I think that, that it can be it can be tricky. Wouldn't it have been nice if, you know, they didn't eat the fruit in the garden and didn't have that no <laughs> if you no. think about it, that no, was that was what be, they brought into the world. They brought into this now they brought us this no, knowledge. No, 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 no. Because if that had not happened we would be sitting in this podcast booth, both of us stark naked, and that would be nothing that any it of us would not bother would want you to one see. bit in that world. I in that want... alternate reality. Blah, 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 <laughs> blah. Way to bring us home. <laughs> if you want to see us fully clothed, you can always find us fully clothed on Twitter. I'm at Jake underscore Roberson. I'm at AC Paul. And until what a next segue. time, we'll catch you on the flip side. Bye. Bye.